Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the podcast of the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Aaron Lansky, and I am here today with Mark Cohen, the author of Overweight Sensation, The Life and Comedy of Alan Sherman. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. You're very welcome. So, uh, you know, I read the book over the weekend, Mark, and I loved it. And last night I was speaking with a 65-year-old friend, and I happened to mention with, like, great enthusiasm that I was going to be interviewing you today about your book on Alan Sherman. And he looked at me and he asked, who's Alan Sherman? So uh, my question for you is, so who was Alan Sherman, and why did you decide to write a book about him? Well, first of all, I'm stunned that someone of that age had never heard of Alan Sherman, because my experience has been just the opposite, that uh, anyone who was uh, above 10 or 12 years old when he was around, uh, knows who he is. And I certainly knew who he was growing up. Uh, I was uh, raised in New York City, and my friends and I are all much younger than 65, although less younger than I used to be. And, <laughs> um, and we all loved Alan Sherman, and we knew his first three albums, especially the My Son Trio. Um, and I had always... I tried to trust my own taste and thought, well, you know, if I like him and my friends like him, he's got to be pretty good. Uh, and then years ago, I stumbled upon his autobiography, and I had never known he'd written one called The Gift of Laughter. And I read it, and I thought, wow, this is a heck of a story. If, if half of this stuff is true, this is an amazing story. Um, and I began researching Sherman with the idea of doing a biography, and I discovered that not only was the biography true, but there was lots more information about his life that was left out of the biography that was even more astounding. Uh, and huh. as I realized that the 50th anniversary of Hello, Mudder was approaching this <laughs> summer in 13, I got on the ball and did the work. Fantastic. So I have a confession to make, and that is that our daughters, who are 19 and 21 now, uh, grew up listening to old Alan Sherman records, which they played over and over again, so many times, I don't think I really want to hear them again, but they really were funny, and our kids uh, thought they were, you know, absolutely great, laughed every single time when he says, you know, members of Hadassah, they would always crack up and they completely got the joke. But, uh, you know, when I read your book, I discovered that he sold a million copies of each of those My Son albums, and that among his enthusiastic fans were President Kennedy. So how come and why did he cross over like that? Well, that's what makes Sherman's story so fascinating, because um, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, the early 1960s saw the arrival of Mel Brooks and his 2,000-year-old man bit, which preceded Sherman's work, and Jackie Mason was doing his early work back then as well, and was uh, well-known. But Sherman, I think, was the first to hit this level of extraordinary stardom with Jewish ethnic material that was not merely cute and adorable, uh, as brilliant as the 2,000-year-old man stuff is. Uh, one of its chief characteristics is how charming it is. Um, the, the Sherman albums were explicitly Jewish material. Yeah, um, Mark, that, explain, explain what he actually did in these records for the three people who have never oh, heard them before, okay? Of course, of course. Um, in My Son, the Folk Singer, which was Alan Sherman's first album, which came out in October 1962, he parodied, he parodied uh, great American folk songs. Um, he took down songs like 
the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was a great 19th century song that trumpeted God's justice coming in and, and slaying all the, the no-goodniks out there. <laughs> and uh, what Sherman did was turn it into a song about a Jewish fellow who works in the Garment Center, and the song is called uh, uh, Glory, Glory, Harry Lewis. Um, Oh, the Ballad of Harry Lewis. I'm right, sorry, right, the Ballad right. of Harry Lewis. And he, he, what he did in these songs was smuggle into the American culture and American conversation the stories of Jewish immigrants who came to this country around the turn of the 20th century, who were of course left out of all of the stories being told in the folk song revival, which was a popular musical. Uh, phenomenon in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And why it made such a tremendous impact on the country was that for decades, millions of Americans who traced their origins to uh, the great waves of immigration around the 20th century had suppressed that identity. And it had started to break, ta- break down the taboo against owning up to ethnic identity. But Sherman was really the straw that broke the camel's back, or maybe not the straw, the 250-pound straw that broke (laughs) the camel's back. And it released an enormous response of of gratefulness, of an exhalation of relief that this is finally out in the open. And it is amazing how well it resonated with all aspects of society. Um, Sherman played the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Wow. He played Labor's 50th, and uh, the Department of Labor had a 50th anniversary party in D.C., and he played that, and that's where he met President Kennedy. It really was an overwhelming response. So it was like uh, the Jews were finally out of the closet with all of this. Not only were the Jews out of the closet, but they were a stand-in uh, for all of the ethnic mm. uh, uh, the ethnic uh, uh, urges and and re- suppressed, as one very shrewd uh, critic noted at the time, it the response to Sherman's albums, the enormous popularity, was a sign that a long suppressed general emotion was being released, mm. and the Jews were in a perfect position to do that. And there was a very funny interview that was done with him in Newsweek magazine, and Sherman tried to strike an ecumenical note. He said, you know, if someone had come out with an album like this who had Italian or Chinese roots, it would have been just as big a hit. And Newsweek didn't buy it. Newsweek's response was, he should live so long. (laughs) (laughs) And what's your take? My take is Newsweek was right, and Sherman was bending over backward to say something and be fair in a way that was just not believable. The Jews for a variety of difficult-to-parse reasons, became America's stand-in ethnic group that elucidated the problem, the travails, and the, with comedy, of being a minority group in America. Um, That's just been a a Jewish phenomenon in this country. Uh, And Sherman was one of the first to do it in such an explicit way and talk about Jews as Jews, use the word Jewish, which was, when you read the, uh, for instance, the New York Times covered Sherman at the height of his 
popularity in August, on August 4th, 1963, and somehow managed to write an entire article about Alan Sherman without using the word Jewish or Jews. <laughs> That's um, a trick. So yeah. was, that, that was a heck of a trick. So there was an enormous timidity about using these words and owning up to explicit ethnic identity, uh, which gives you more respect for what Sherman actually accomplished. So uh, Sherman, Sherman had hit on uh, a cultural nerve that was waiting uh, for someone to express what everyone was thinking. Right, and but, that's what Sherman did in that first album. But of course, what you point out is that, you know, Jews had been way, way, way overrepresented in popular culture up until that point. Broadway, television, radio, but they had never done it as Jews. You have a great quote where you say, uh, there were no Jews on stage, that's because they were all backstage writing themselves out of the script. And uh, Sherman clearly uh, violated that, right? Yes, and, and I was in that line I was talking about the great Broadway musicals, which were largely Jewish creations, and that's a common notion today. And in fact, this year on PBS, uh, many people have seen something called um, Broadway, a Jewish cultural legacy hmm. about the role of Jews uh, on Broadway. Uh, it was a very good documentary. But Sherman realized this more than 50 years ago. He composed what he called Golden Moments from Broadway. And Golden Moments from Broadway were his Jewish parodies of Broadway songs that were written by Jews. And he used to introduce them with the line, I wondered what would it have been, how would it have sounded, if all of the great Broadway hits of all the great Broadway musicals had been written by Jews, <laughs> which they were. Naturally. And then he created songs like There's <coughs> Nothing Like a Locks and 76 Saul Cones and a Jewish version of Small World from Gypsy, which was written by Sondheim. Um, and uh, and my, one of my favorites, which is When You Walk Through the Bronx, which is his version of When You Walk Through a Storm from Carousel. Uh, and I actually found all of these songs and even recordings of all of these songs. Uh, and you can find some of them on YouTube, on a uh, YouTube channel that I posted. So, so, you know, what's really interesting to me is that Sherman's kind of great year when he came out with these three albums and, you know, sold millions of copies of them. That was, what, 62 to 63, is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. His first album came out October 62. It was quickly followed two months later by My Son, the Celebrity, in December 62, then a national concert tour, uh, through the whole winter and spring of 63. Then in the summer of 63, Hello Mudda, Hello Fada appeared as a single. It went through the roof. In two weeks, hmm. it sold 300,000 copies. In about eight weeks, it sold 700,000 copies. And then My Son the Nut appeared with Hello Mudda on it. And that album was the number one best-selling album in the country for eight weeks running, from the end of August the middle of October 63. So that October to October period, three gold albums, a Grammy Award winning song, number one selling albums in the country, uh, unbelievable fame and adulation in one year. <laughs> 
Right, so what's amazing to me is that particular year. Because this, of course, was just at the cusp of a uh, social upheaval, which was to uh, you know, completely transform the entire country and the whole world just before the Beatles, just before Bob Dylan makes his mark. I mean, everything's about to change at this point. So if you were to look at Sherman, as you do in the book, and, and compare kind of his iconoclasm with that of even more outrageous and more explicitly Jewish contemporaries like, say, Lenny Bruce and uh, Woody Allen, with whom you describe he shared a stage in an LBJ fundraiser, how did Sherman uh, fit in with all of that? How outrageous was he by comparison with his contemporaries, and, and how was he, in fact, you know, quickly eclipsed by them? Uh, that's a very good question. The question of where Sherman fits, because as everybody knows who knows Sherman's work, his comedy is more gentle, certainly, uh, than Lenny Bruce. But I thought there was an, a Lenny Bruce-Alan Sherman overlap that might shock and amaze some people and absolutely appall others. Hmm. But there, there's a great bit by Lenny Bruce about the fact that, dig, I'm Jewish, Count Basie's Jewish, and so on and so forth, that who's Jewish and who's Goyish. And I really thought that that line about delineating what makes authentic Jewish behavior and Sherman's line about what would it have been like if all the Broadway tunes had been written by Jews, which they were, uh, were expressing the same idea. And that was that in 1962-63, in that early period, thoughtful people in comedy and elsewhere were wondering what Jewish American life was going to look like. What was an honest Jewish American life? And uh, Lenny Bruce was working it out in his comedy. Sherman was working it out in his parodies. Hmm. Um, what Woody Allen was doing was something different. He had a much larger, more ambitious uh, approach to his comedy. And though Sherman and Woody Allen uh, both appeared in public around the same time, they both had, of course, earlier careers, uh, but they both appeared in public around the same time, Woody Allen was able to do things that moved him into a greater realm of the culture just as Sherman was being eclipsed. Their, their stars passed each other on Sherman's way down and, and Woody Allen's way up. Um, but I don't think that Sherman has been given enough credit for his long-lasting influence. To me, it's very interesting that you can go on YouTube and find Larry David, today's great Jewish comedian, uh, singing Alan Sherman's "There um, uh, Shake Hands with Your Uncle Max. At really? A concert. Really? Yes, yes. She, uh, Al, Larry David was invited in 2011 to the Boston Pops during the summer. It was a terrible day. It was raining. He said, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> and he could sing any song he wanted. He chose Alan Sherman's Shake Hands with Your Uncle Max. And then... Um, Jerry Seinfeld on his Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. He's speaking with his friend, Joel Hodgson. And Joel says, I always wish that Sherman, Alan Sherman, had appeared on Mad Men. And <laughs> Seinfeld's head just gets blown. He says, wow, that would have been amazing. Huh. And then there's Jason Alexander, who wrote a wonderful blurb for my book. That's virtually the whole Seinfeld gang giving a thumbs up for Sherman. Sherman really influenced today's generation of great comics. And just a few weeks ago, Rick Moranis of Ghostbusters and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids came out with a new Jewish comedy album. 
And who does he credit as an inspiration? Alan Sherman. Wow. Wow. So the only problem with this book is it's got a very sad ending. I don't want to give anything away, but, uh, but I will anyway. So by 67, look, Sherman was sort of a mess by that point. His fame was fading. He was no longer all that funny. He was divorced, grossly overweight, uh, smoking. I think you say he was drinking scotch by the tumbler, uh, sex, sexually licentious, if not to mention uh, kind of sophomoric. Uh, his latest Broadway show was a flop. He's no longer even remotely happy or successful. So was that his own kind of self-destructiveness finally coming to the fore and catching up with him? Or had the time simply uh, passed him by at that point? Well, I, I'm afraid it was a combination of the two. It was a perfect storm for Sherman. Um, his self-destructiveness, which was bred early in his life through a crazy childhood, that he understood. He was always a very clever and insightful guy. And in junior high school, he wrote the first song parody I was able to find. And it was a parody of Humpty Dumpty, where he writes, Humpty Dumpty sat on a train happily singing Bemir Bistouchane. <laughs> well, that, that was Sherman's whole life in two lines. He was the overweight and intensely fragile Humpty Dumpty hmm. who enjoyed singing and singing Jewish material. And that fragility, that brokenness that could never be fixed, that Humpty Dumpty nature of his life, uh, he was able to hold it together for about 40 years or so. Hmm. And then it just started falling apart. And unfortunately and ironically, it was his fame and his money uh, that allowed him the freedom to engage in behavior that ruined his life. Um, and on top of all that, there was uh, the change in the culture, which drew attention in completely other directions. So it really was a perfect storm. Uh, it's like when any terrible tragedy happens. It's not just one thing going wrong. It's multiple things going wrong simultaneously. And mm. that's what happened to Sherman. Uh, and it was very sad because he really was a talented guy, but his demons and his early problems, which he could never make go away, uh, finally came back to haunt and then destroy him. Hmm. So he died of a heart attack in 73, right? In 1973, just shy of his 49th birthday. Right, and here we are 40 years later, and we look back at him now, and suddenly he starts to look different to us. I understand there's a release of a new uh, set of his CDs called My Son the Box. Perfect. Uh, and suddenly, you know, Sherman, who by many was sort of dismissed as maybe a novelty actor, you know, the, sing the singer of Hello, Mother, Hello, Fada, suddenly I think there's a, a reassessment taking place. What do you think his legacy is, and how enduring is he likely to, to be? Well, I think to have sustained interest in him for 50 years is already quite a testament to his comedy. Right. I think that's extraordinary. Uh, I can't tell you how often I speak with people uh, that out of nowhere, and I'll mention somewhat sheepishly, because I don't think the person I'm speaking with is going to know who Sherman is, and I mention that I'm writing a book about Alan Sherman or have published one, and the response is extraordinary. People love Alan Sherman. Um, I think he's become a more or less permanent part of the culture. Uh, it... it it may last only another 20 or 30 years when our generation finally fades uh, over the sunset. Uh, but I think in the post-World War II era, uh, 
he articulated something that has found its way, has burrowed its way into the culture in a way that uh, very few comedians do. His lines, which were very, very clever from his songs, come to people's lips very often as a way of expressing something uh, very acutely, very, very perceptively, and with great wit. Um, so I don't think he's uh, over the hill. I think your daughter's example of their enjoyment in him is another sign of what makes him so permanent, and that is it's equally appealing, his work, to children or young people and adults. He had uh, a wonderful delight in wordplay, and there's something so enjoyable and infectious about song parodies that are done the way he did them. Uh, I just think he really hit a comic gold mine hmm. with his his style of comedy. Uh, it's and I can't think of anyone who's his proper successor. With all due respect to Weird Al Yankovic, who gave me a wonderful blurb on my book and who's been a tremendous success. Um, I think Sherman still is in a class by himself. Well, that's great, and your book makes that uh, amply clear, and I think the book itself will have a, uh, an impact on how we understand Sherman for, for many years to come. So I want to I thank you for that. And I'm going to end with just one last question. So you're ready? Here it comes. So what's, uh, your, what's your favorite Alan Sherman song? My favorite Alan Sherman song? It's a toss-up between the ballad of Harry Lewis but you know what? I'm going to have to give the edge to shake hands with your Uncle Max. All right, and tell us about the song, and maybe we'll be able to splice it in here as well. Shake Hands with Your Uncle Max is a parody of an Irish tune called Dear Old Donegal, and that's the one that recites all the Irish names. Here's, you know, McCartney, McGillan, Harrigan, you know, Barrigan, and so forth. And Sherman turned it into a proud announcement of Jewish last names, which you can bet even today will make people squirm when they hear Minkus and Pincus and Stein with an E-I and Stein with a Y. When he came out with that proud, joyous, not sentimental, not sanctimonious, but just purely uh, pure joy of announcing these names, and with a with a tremendous why not in his in his attitude, there was a, that that was the most freeing, the most uh, groundbreaking song I think for him and for all the Jews and all the ethnics who heard it. I think it's just great, and I think Larry David's singing of it was just the perfect testament to its long-lasting brilliance. Well, great, and I think, it, again, once again, the book is called Overweight Sensation, The Life and Comedy of Alan Sherman. It is a great read. I can't recommend it enough, and thank you very much for being with us today, Mark. Uh, oh, it's been great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, you've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, tune into our website, www.yiddishbookcenter.org. Our producer is Agnieszka Rilvitska. I'm Aaron Lansky. Zaymir Stark and Gesund. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.